This is Endourology Sound Bites, a new podcast series from the publisher of the Journal of Endourology and Video Urology, in cooperation with the Endourological Society. This series is brought to you by Richard Wolf, a global leader in endoscopy since 1906. Richard Wolf delivers solutions that are improving patient outcomes and shaping the future of minimally invasive surgery. For more information, please visit richardwolfusa.com. Hello, this is Brian Metlaga, Associate Director of Education for the Endourological Society, and I would like to welcome you to our podcast series, Endourology Soundbites, sponsored by Richard Wolf. In this episode, I invite you to join us as we listen to Dr. Leeming Sue from the University of Florida describing management of the distal ureter and bladder cuff during minimally invasive nephroureterectomy, historical perspective from cystoscopic, laparoscopic to robotic approaches. My name is Dr. Leeming Su, Department of Urology, University of Florida, the chairman of the department. And thank you for this opportunity for allowing me to share with you my thoughts on the management of the distal ureter and bladder cuff during minimally invasive nephroureterectomy. I'd like to provide a historic perspective of sort of the evolution of managing the distal ureter and bladder cuff by various minimally invasive techniques. And really what I will go over is the rapid changes that we have seen over the last decade, starting from some of the cystoscopic attempts at managing the distal ureter, followed by laparoscopic, and then more recently, the robotic approaches to distal ureterectomy and bladder cuff management. And I think these evolutions really highlight the creativity of individuals in our field and the ingenuity really in the field of urology and is a good example of how our field has continued to be very dynamic. So let's start with talking about the principles of surgery. As we all very well know, the principles of a nephroureterectomy includes complete removal of the kidney, ureter, and a bladder cuff on the affected side with regional lymph node dissection. However, specific to the management of the distal ureter and bladder cuff, there really is the concept of end block removal of the entire distal ureter along with the specimen, including the intradetrusor tunnel of ureter and an adequate inclusion of bladder cuff during this excision. And during this part of this operation, it is advocated to try to avoid spillage of urine from the bladder. As we all know, this is a panurothelial disease. And so as to avoid a local recurrence, you know, minimization of spillage of urine during excision of the bladder cuff is certainly advised. So from a historical standpoint, really when I think about it, there have been three different major concepts or approaches to managing the distal ureter. One is the pluck technique that I'll go over. The other is extravesical transection approaches. And then lastly, the robotic extravesical end block excision and closure. And so let's go through each of these. I remember early in my career in early 2000, what was being popularized at that time is the concept of a laparoscopic intervention. So mostly what people were pushing at the time was laparoscopic nephroureterectomy. However, when working deep in the pelvis, this became very difficult to access the distal ureter and manage the bladder cuff. So the concept of a cystoscopic approach to freeing up the distal ureter was conceived. 
And this required initially starting cystoscopically, as we do a lot of transgeneral interventions, but using a Collins electrode to circumscribe the bladder cuff and ureter orifice through the tunnel, the intradetrusor tunnel, all the way until thadosine therefore freeing up that remaining distal portion of the ureter. Once that was formed, we would place a 5-millimeter trocar, almost like a suprapubic tube, directly into the bladder. And that allowed a placement of a ligature or a snare, if you will, that could then ligate the ureter in a uh, laparoscopic fashion. Then we would turn to the laparoscopic nephro-ureterectomy and essentially pluck the ureter from above since it's already been freed from the bladder. The other way of doing this would be to transurethrally resect the distal ureter and intradetrusor portion of the ureter until fatacine and do the same maneuver in plucking the ureter laparoscopically. Basically, the problems with this, however, is when performing this cystoscopically, this led to a significant amount of extravasation of fluid into the retroperitoneum and the pelvis, and that can be seen when we uh, turn to a laparoscopic intervention. So, you know, one of the concerns is, you know, with this being a panurethelial disease, you know, is there a risk of extravasating malignant cells in the retroperitoneum? And in fact, there are unpublished reports of just that happening. The other problem is the detrusor, you know, at the side of the bladder cuff would be left open. And this would lead to long catheterizations to allow for spontaneous closure. And this may not be such a problem in female patients, but in male patients that have high-pressure bladders and perhaps significant BPH symptoms, uh, you can imagine that may lead to a longer duration of Foley catheterization to allow that to heal. So some advantages of managing the distal ureter in a minimal invasive way, in a creative way, but disadvantages in that it really did not hold to the principles that we have long stood by in open surgery of and block removal and closure of the bladder with minimization of spillage of urine into the retroperitoneum. And I should include in this, there were other institutions that actually placed multiple trocars percutaneously into the bladder and did a laparoscopic mobilization of the distal ureter as another way of freeing up the ureter prior to a pluck technique. Then came other attempts at doing this all laparoscopically from above, and this required dissection of the ureter down to the ureterovesical junction until the bladder fibers would spread and create almost a Y effect where the ureter was thought to enter into the detrusor and end at the ureter orifice. And at that point, either a endoscopic GIA stapler was used to transect across the ureteral vesicle junction, or some had advocated the use of a ligature. I think some of the concerns that were raised at that is during dissection of the distal ureter, and even though the fibers may splay out, suggesting that you're at the final ureter orifice, the concern is, were we really getting a true bladder cough? And are we, you know, potentially just getting the distal ureter and not the entire intratrusor tunnel of the ureter? So, you know, the reliability of complete excision of the ureter orifice and bladder cuff was raised. So this led to, you know, more modern use of, or what's currently used as many uses, robotic extravesical and block excision and closure. And I'll get into the details in a second, but the advantage here is that it really adheres to the principles of open surgery, which, again, I reiterate is including controlled end block excision of the entire ureter and surrounding bladder cuff with immediate closure of the bladder. And this really allows us to leave catheters in for a much shorter period of time as compared to when the 
distal ureter bladder cap was left open. And, you know, ultimately back to the principles of surgery would uh, minimize the risk of urine spillage and potential contamination or uh, retroperitoneal recurrence. So let's turn to the robotic technique. And uh, most commonly, this is performed by the Da Vinci robotic system, either an SI or an XI system. I will talk to you more about the XI system, although I initially started using the SI robot in both are reasonable approaches, but there are pros and cons. So first about robotic trocar configurations, there are various robotic trocar configurations that have been proposed. With the SI system, generally I use four trocars, similar to a laparoscopic nephrectomy approach, but one trocar low down in the lower abdomen in the suprapubic area. And the three trocars would be used to dissect the kidney robotically, but it would require the robot to be docked cephalad over the shoulder of the patient as the beginning of the operation and then redocking of the robot to use the lower three trocars during the distal ureterectomy. And that was very feasible, but it did require some maneuvering in the operating room by the operating team. So there was some time delay for the second docking. With the excise system, you know, there are unique advantages in that it really eliminates the need for redocking. And it's specifically because the robot arms are designed with a much lower profile as compared to the SI system and also a longer reach and also joints that allow for minimization of any external collision between arms. And therefore, it really allows us to approach the entire length of the GU system from the kidney to the ureter to the bladder cuff quite reasonably without the need for redocking the robot. So this has really become, I think, much more advantageous. Now, getting back to the trocar configuration, specifically for an XI technique, whereas most robotic renal cases, whether a radical or a partial nephrectomy, requires four 8-millimeter robot trocars placed in a linear, almost pararectus line for a nephro that linear arrangement is preserved, but it is placed in a slightly diagonal fashion with the most caudal trocar more medially placed than the more cephala trocar. And a single assistant trocar can be placed, depending on the particular anatomy, that can be above the umbilicus or at or below the umbilicus, just in efforts to provide access for suction and retraction by the assistant while minimizing a collision with any instrumentation intraperitoneally or any external collision with the robotic arms on the outside. So as per routine in any nephroeuterectomy, you know, the principle is early dissection and ligation of the ureter with the hemoclip below the index lesion. And this is really to try to minimize any spillage or any elaboration of malignant cells from the upper urinary tract that may see the bladder. And it is because of this reason, it's been my practice to administer intravesical mitomycin C intraoperatively during the nephrectomy portion to allow it to dwell in the bladder prior to the distal ureteral dissection. And this is based on foundations of several randomized control studies that are emerging in the literature that suggest that a dose of mitomycin C perioperatively following nephroeuterectomy or ureteroscopy and biopsy of an upper tract lesion can decrease bladder tumor recurrences down the road. And as such, you know, I generally administer intraoperatively a single dose of 40 milligrams of mitomycin C and allow it to dwell at least 30 to 45 minutes prior to the dyslipidectomy. And we certainly flush the bladder with about two to 300 cc's of saline after draining the mitomycin C prior to opening the bladder cuff 
to minimize any risk of mitomycin C and its potential effects to the tissues in the area. So it was interesting when we published recently in 2018 in the journal Bladder Cancer, our retrospective series comparing intraoperative use of mitomycin C, as I described, to a colleague of mine that did uh, mitomycin C really in the perioperative period within one to two days postoperatively. And what we were surprised to find is that there was a significantly lower bladder tumor recurrence risk using the intraoperative technique with 16% recurrence at one year versus 33% recurrence if the dose was given in the postoperative period or the perioperative period. And so currently we have prospective studies underway to support this finding. But moving on, after we allow sufficient time for the mitomycin C to dwell, the bladder is drained and, as I said, rinsed with 200 to 300 cc's of sterile saline, and then again, the Foley's place to drainage. Next, the ureter is dissected in an extravesical manner down to the bladder cuff, and at times, it's necessary to gain better exposure to the UVJ because it's so deep inside the pelvis that you know one may consider dividing the ipsilateral median umbilical ligament and enter that side of the space of retzius to allow the bladder to rotate, if you will, more medially, bringing the ureterovascular junction into better exposure. And in male patients, as you dissect the distal ureter down to the UVJ, the vas deferens may need to be divided. And in females, the ipsilateral round ligament and infundibular pelvic ligaments often require division to get the ureter all the way down to the bladder. The ureter is then dissected down to the ureteral vesicle junction until it begins to fan out, and you truly begin to see the thinning out uh, as you get down through the muscle to the mucosa itself, and this is where you know you're actually down to the right location. The detrusor muscles oftentimes need to be dissected away and circumferentially to see the actual mucosa, and then you enter into the mucosa after ensuring, again, the bladder has been rinsed and drained of mitomycin, and you can actually visually see the ureter orifice, and this really allows you to get a very nice bladder cuff. And I generally like to get at least a dime-sized bladder cuff with the distal ureter. And this way, we have insurance that we got the entire distal ureter and bladder cuff out as compared to what I previously described as the transection techniques of either stapling across the distal ureter or using the ligature device. Using a 2.0 vital suture on a UR6 needle, we can then close the bladder mucosa and the detrusor in two layers. And really with technique as compared to traditional open surgery, there really is no need for a large sagittal cystotomy. And since we're completely closing the bladder, this means a shorter catheter period, less hematuria, and oftentimes these catheters can be removed in three to five days and you know, perhaps even earlier. And, you know, I will end by just saying, you know, I think this is a technique that's very elegant. I think it follows open surgical principles. And I hope this has been helpful in reviewing the evolution of various minimally techniques and perhaps useful in your own practice. Thank you for this opportunity to share with you this podcast.